Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you remember back from our introduction quite a few weeks ago, I gave us kind of a general outline of the book of 2 Samuel. The first ten chapters portray David and all of I'll say and all of his goodness, his righteousness, a man after God's own heart. We see that God is fulfilling his promise to David during that time to make him king. And then I mentioned that the next ten chapters, chapter ten through twenty or chapter eleven through twenty, takes a different or a darker turn. It's actually um, not a good time for David, is the best way to describe it. Um, in many respects, the first ten chapters, David serves as a type or an example of Christ. And we've kind of focused on that, concentrated on that. In these next ten chapters, I think it would be fair to say that rather than serving as a type of Christ, he still does to some degree, he almost serves more as a type of Israel, meaning an example of Israel and Israel's sin and the consequences. And we sort of see that in David. And so the, the next ten chapters that we go through are going to be a little bit different than the first ten. In some respects, they're, they're not as encouraging, but in other ways they are just as and even more so in some respects because they show God's response to David when he sins and David's response to God when he gets confronted. And that um, really all starts with our passage today. And to be real honest, it starts with... A bang. In fact, I'm looking at the, the headline here in chapter 11 of my NASB Bible, and it says, Bathsheba, David's great sin. And that is a reminder of what we're going to look at today. Today we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, where we see most, or where we see probably the most well known sins of David. Probably the starkest, the grossest, if you will. Um, something that many, even unsaved people, would know and remember or recognize about David. And as we look at it, I'm going to keep another verse in mind because it's going to kind of create, in some respects, um, uh, an overlay to what we're looking at today. It comes from James chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We're going to see that pattern in David's behavior Today And so again, it kind of becomes our overlay to what we're going to talk about today. We're going to see a perfect example of what James mentions here in what we're going to look at today. The first couple of verses lay out um, what we can expect here. And it said, David's temptation began innocent enough. This is going to be a passage today about David's temptation and his sin. And the first thing that stands out to me about it is that David's temptation began innocently enough. The text tells us that it was springtime. Let me go ahead and read that. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Amnon, or Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of his king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and she, or and the woman, was very beautiful in appearance. So the text tells us that it was springtime. That's normally when the kings would go out to fight their battles. But this time it says David stayed behind. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach on this because some argue that this was David's first sin, that he stayed behind and he shouldn't have been staying behind. They attribute to David some type of devious behavior, that he had a reason to stay behind, and it all had to do with watching Bathsheba and having 
adultery with her. But you notice there's nothing really in the text here. It's fairly innocent in the sense that it simply says that he, the kings normally go out and he stayed behind. Now, this isn't the first time or the only time David stayed behind. He had a very um, competent general in Joab. The army that he was specifically facing at this point was not a very strong army. And so... I'm going to just take the text at face value here and say that David didn't have a need to go out. He was leaving the um, battle, if you will, to his competent general Joab. And so David simply stays behind because it wasn't necessary or required for him to go out. And he's doing something here that um, was fairly normal. It said that David in the evening had just risen from his nap and he took a stroll on the rooftop of the palace. It was a fairly common custom in the ancient Near East to sleep or nap in the afternoon because that was the warmest part of the day. They didn't have central air like we do today. And so they would often nap. I think, isn't that pretty common or typical down in Mexico to be napping in the middle of the day? Well, same thing in the ancient Near East. It was also fairly common for them to be able to go up to the rooftop of the home in the evenings because it was generally cooler because you'd get the breeze. And so David is doing just that. Fairly innocent at this point. He's just doing what you would expect that he might do. But while he's walking on the rooftop, it says that he saw a beautiful young woman bathing. We know that that's Bathsheba. Now it doesn't tell us specifically where she was bathing. Verse 4 indicates that she was cleansing herself. There's a slight difference in how the NASB translates that particular verse there. We'll get to that in a minute here. But it says that she was cleansing herself after her monthly cycle, a fairly common um, requirement according to the law. And so she was doing that. We should assume probably on that that she was doing that in the privacy of her own home. That's not something you would typically do out in the open. There are some who have tried to claim that Bathsheba was deliberately bathing on the rooftop of her house, specifically in the the sight of David, to draw David's eyes and attention toward her. But again, we don't see that in the text, do we? I think that's an assumption, and I think it's a very bad assumption. It's more likely that she was doing this in the privacy of her own home. David's um, mansion, if you will, was higher up. He could see down into the city. And as you can imagine, as he's up there on his rooftop, he could probably see through the windows in the homes, or the openings in the homes. There may have been a a little portico area where her bath was that would normally afford privacy because of the walls, but if you're higher up, you can look down and you can see those things, and that's basically what we're seeing here. I've got a great example of this. One of the things I hate about our bedroom at home is that right there there's a our master bedroom is fairly large and there's a, a what's almost like a hallway that leads to our math room, our master bath and there's a little table there makeup table for Amy and right there there's a window that looks out over our driveway but the windowsill is about here and so the window is like this and it faces all of our neighbors and out into the cul-de-sac and you have to go past that to see or to get into the bathroom well Amy's closet is on this side of the window, my closet is on this side of the window, and then there's the bathroom. So anytime we do anything in that bathroom, we have to walk right in front of that window. Now, if you're down in the driveway, you don't see anything. But as I look out the window, I can see all of my neighbors, and I'm going to make the assumption that all of my neighbors could see me in front of that window. And considering the windowsill is about this high, they probably could get a pretty good look at all of me if I wasn't careful. And so we have these shades that allow us to basically bring them from the bottom up 
or the top down. And so generally speaking, in the morning, I will open those shades up. I don't open it all the way up, but what I do is I open it up so that the top is down and the whole bottom is covered. And that's for privacy. It's because I'm smart enough to know that due to the height, anybody else that's in their second story can look in and see us in all of our glory. And I think that's what we have here is David is up on the rooftop and he's able to look down and see. And so as he's strolling in the middle of the day, innocently enough, enjoying the, the cool of the evening, he looks down and he can see this, what's called here, this beautiful woman, beautiful in appearance, bathing. That's often how temptation begins, is it not? We don't necessarily have to plan or to scheme to sin, though we sometimes do. And we'll see that in a moment with David. Temptation often begins simply in the course of everyday activities or events, and sometimes when we least expect it. I don't believe David was staying home from war, specifically so that he might sin. I don't think he was up on his rooftop, specifically spying out Bathsheba, deliberately looking for an opportunity. The text simply presents this as David walking in the cool of the evening up on his rooftop, and Bathsheba catches his eye. And so David's temptation began innocently enough, which is often the way that it is. We don't have to go out looking for opportunities to sin because they will oftentimes find us in the normal course of our daily events. So what happened? Well, the problem really ultimately was that David allowed himself to be carried away and enticed by his own desires, his own lust. So James tells us exactly what will happen if we're not careful. And we see that here with David. So the second point today is that David allowed himself to be carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. We're in verses 3 through 5. I'll read those in a little bit. The problem for David wasn't that he was tempted, but it's in how he handled the temptation that he faced. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. It is the beginnings, and it's when that temptation is engaged in that it ultimately will lead to sin, and that's what we see here with David. Temptation is a part of life because of our sin nature. Paul told us that no temptation has overtaken us except that which is common to man. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That when we get overtaken, it's fairly um, common to us. In fact, Jesus himself, it says, was tempted. In Hebrews chapter 4, does it not? It says he was tempted yet without sin. Temptation is a part of human nature. It's who we are. Adam and Eve, who were still in a perfect state, were tempted in the garden. Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will also be able to endure it. So here we have the situation where we're told we'll all face temptation because it's common. Jesus faced temptation. But even in that temptation, because God is faithful, he will allow us an opportunity to escape it, which means we don't have to sin. Now that's especially true here of us believers because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And imagine if those of us with the Holy Spirit still struggle sometimes with temptation. It is, I will say, impossible or nearly impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, according to the Bible, temptation becomes a problem when we allow ourselves, as James says, to be carried away and enticed by that lust, or by our desires is a better word for that. And inevitably, he says, that will then conceive and give birth to sin. So what's the problem? The problem is that we allow that temptation to um, ultimately carry us away and to entice us. And it's exactly what we see with David. This is where David first failed, and we see the progression in his temptation to sin. He had an opportunity to look away. He should have taken it. The Hebrew tense for saw, in this particular case here, is in the imperfect, which basically means that it refers to an ongoing action. That David saw her, and instead of turning away, what did he do? He continued to look. He continued to see. And as a result of that, he was enticed by his own desire. He liked what he saw. The text tells us she was a beautiful woman. Now, what we know of Bathsheba is fairly limited here, but she was likely a very young woman, probably fairly newly married, because it doesn't say anything about her inability to have children. We know that she does have children later, but the fact that she was married and did not have any children would typically indicate that she was fairly young and fairly newly married. David, at this point, is probably a good 30 years her senior. He's looking down, he sees her, he finds her attractive, and it says here that he continued to look at her. He allowed himself to be carried away and to be enticed. The easiest point at which, or the easiest point at which to avoid sin is in the initial stages. Think about this for a moment. Would it have been easier for David to simply turn his eyes away or to wait until they had brought her up to his chamber? And that is why this pattern that James talked about we're carried away and enticed, why that is such a critical stage in temptation. Will we allow ourselves to be carried away and enticed? Because James tells us if we do that and when we do that, it will give birth then to sin. Which means the point at which to stop the temptation or the, the, the progression towards sin is at those earliest stages. David should not have continued to look. Should have turned his eyes away. Should have done what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife tried to entice him. And what did he do? Got his little boogie legs on. Booked out the door. So David allowed himself to be carried away and enticed. Look at verse 3. It says, So David sent and inquired about the woman. Notice the extra step there. It went from simply looking to now, hmm, I want to get some information about her. Maybe at this point David was just trying to tell himself, I just want to know who she is. I have no intent on bringing her to me. I just, I just want to know who she is. I'm kind of curious. It's like those office affairs that start sometimes between a boss and a secretary. You know, I'm a little interested in her. But he's married. He would never consider having an affair. But he starts to involve himself with her personal life and spend more time with her and progresses oftentimes from there. And so David here sends and inquires about the woman. So what reason would David have to seek information about Bathsheba? He has no reason to do that other than he's now interested. He's enticed. 
He was a married man. In fact, at this time, he actually had at least seven of his own wives, plus he had inherited the concubines from Saul. I would say that's a problem. It's fairly common in his culture, especially among kings. We also have to assume that David was intimately familiar with the law, which condemned adultery. In fact, I've been studying through um, later chapters here with Absalom when he basically takes into files David's concubines and some of the passages in the Old Testament that specifically talk about not just adultery and having to stone adulterers, but also the significant increase in that sin, if you will, when it's your own father to whom you commit adultery against. David would have been intimately familiar with that. We've seen so far his love for the law of the Lord. Look at some of the Psalms that David wrote. He understood. He would have known that this was a violation of the law. He would have had no reason to ask about Bathsheba. But yet, he did. He sought information. The only reason he might have done that was because, again, he was enticed and carried away by his own desire. By the time we get to the second half of verse 3, David has crossed the line. He's given in to the temptation. Look at verse second half of verse 3, and we'll read out through verse 5. It says this, And one said, Is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. So in spite of learning that Bathsheba is the daughter of one of his most trusted generals, one of his most loyal advisors, David sends messengers to get her now. He says, go get her for me. Bring her here. Bring her to the palace. And ultimately he commits adultery. As a result of that, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. This is something else I love about the scriptures. The irony here. Do you notice anything about that? What did James say happens? He uses language of pregnancy to describe how sin ultimately comes about. talks about us being drawn away and enticed by our own desires and how that conceives and ultimately gives birth to sin. And what happens with David here? Anybody else find that rather ironic? God does that a lot of times in the scriptures. gives us great word pictures and those little twists that make us kind of go, wow. And this is one of those examples. In David's case, we have not just his sin leading to adultery, but to physical pregnancy in Bathsheba. His sin literally gave birth, did it not? And so we find Bathsheba here pregnant because of David's sin. It's been trendy lately here to do two things. One is to accuse David of rape here, especially with the Me Too movement. Another trend is to make Bathsheba part of the sin and describe her as wanting it, deliberately bathing out naked so David could see her. But I think what this likely presents is um, Bathsheba being taken under duress. Partly, imagine this, a young woman newly married at home when her husband's away at war, and a king, the most powerful man in all of Israel, sends for you. It may have even made her wonder a little bit, why would the king call me? Well, her husband's, one of his 
best commanders. She may have gone innocently enough just because the king is asking. Maybe maybe he's got news of her husband. Who knows? But I think it's a leap to draw Bathsheba into this. In fact, nowhere is Bathsheba ever condemned for this act. And in fact, the rest of the scriptures paint her in fairly positive light. I would argue that she was a young woman who was taken away by a powerful king who was 30 years her senior and likely dragged into adultery here under duress. Whether or not that would be rape, we could argue and debate that. Either way, David took advantage of her. It was a terrible thing. It was condemned by the law. And ultimately, David should have received death as a result. This was a pretty heinous sin. But as shocking as his behavior is up until this point, well, let me let me just clarify one thing. I mentioned to you the second, I think the second part of verse 5, um, or I'm sorry, verse 4 says, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The NASB is the only one that translates it as an event that took place after. In other words, she somehow, after the adultery, had cleansed herself and then went home. Most of your other English translations treat that as a parenthetical statement. I believe that it's just that, a parenthetical statement, that the cleansing was done beforehand, that David saw her while she was cleansing herself. And I don't know how critical that is. I just know that some of you might have a different rendering in your scriptures, which is why I pointed out. But the New American Standard is the only one that translates it as an event that took place after the sin with David. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, except that there's a reason why most of the other translations basically treat it as parenthetical. She had been bathing herself um, beforehand. So, if you have any questions about that, you can ask a little bit later, depending on your translation, but most of them treat it that way. But, let's go back. As shocking as David's behavior has been up until this point, what comes next is even more so as David tries to cover up his sin. Third point today is that David's sin led to a spiral of other sins and wickedness. It didn't stop with his one sin with Bathsheba. It continued on. In fact, his latter sins were worse than the first in some respects. There's three attempts here by David to cover this up. His first attempt to cover up his sin is to recall Uriah, her husband, from the front and to encourage him to go home and to sleep with his wife. In other words, man, if he can go home, sleep with her, they'll they'll think the baby's his. So he calls Uriah from the front, sends him home, hoping he will sleep with his wife, and therefore assume the child is his. We find that in the first, or the next couple of verses here. Start of verse 6. Then David said to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked, Concerning the welfare of Joab and the people of the state of war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. So he goes and he calls Uriah home. Notice the deception and the false pretense here. Uriah shows up, probably wonders why he's been asked to come back from the front. And David's like, oh, I just want to know how the war is going. Why would you ever call a low-level, I'll call it this, a low-level soldier to find out how the war is going when you've already talked with the commander? He's already talked to... David knew how the war was going. Joab would have communicated that to him. But David, under this pretense, he has to come up with some excuse as to why he's called Uriah home. He can't say, well, you know what, I just committed adultery with your wife. I need you to go home and sleep with her because I don't want anybody to find out she's pregnant now. So it's, I just, I, I want to know, uh, how's the front? Well, sit out, have some wine with me. Sit down, Uriah. Let's, let's talk. How are things going out there on the front? The pretense there, that's, you can already see David's deception here leading to further sin. Can you not? 
Notice too in verse 8 that he even tries to butter him up. Sends him a present. Sends him a gift. Make him feel good. That is... You think about what David has just done to his wife. And he sends him a gift. A callous. To violate his wife in the way that he did and then think, I'll just send him a gift. That's messed up. Well, David's first attempt actually fails here. Look at verses 9 through 11. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Why have you, or have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Ouch! <laughs> Look at the loyalty. This, this passage seeps this incredible character of this man Uriah who basically says, I, I can't go to my wife. The men that I serve with are still sleeping in the field. My commander's out there. Even the ark of God, he, he's living in a tent too. I, I, can't, I can't do this. He even mentions this. You know, by your life and the life of your soul, David. I can't, I can't do this. I'm your servant. I'm serving you out there in the battle. I cannot go and take advantage of the luxury of being home with my wife when nobody else can. And so he sleeps with the servants of David. Boy, that's just... I think God gives us some insight here and he contrasts the loyalty of Uriah to David and to the other men and contrasts that with David's lack of loyalty to Uriah, his soldier, by taking advantage of his wife. Well, so David then has to readjust... He's going to make a second attempt to cover up his sin because his first plan didn't go so well. Verses 12 through 13. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also and tomorrow. I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. So David's second attempt now to cover up his sin is to get Uriah drunk, thinking he'll lose his faculties and he'll go home and he'll sleep with his wife. And once again now, nobody will know. I don't think we have to argue that that was sin as well. Because now it went from just being deceptive to trying to manipulate and to control Uriah's behavior by getting him drunk. The Bible tells us that being drunk is wrong. David would have known that. But he uses that as his trick and his arsenal to try to manipulate Uriah to now cover up David's sin. He's become much more desperate. And again, Uriah, even when he's drunk, doesn't go home, but goes back to the servants' quarters and sleeps with them. David's third attempt to cover up his sin takes a dark and wicked turn now because at this point he feels his only recourse is to eliminate Uriah and to marry his wife because in doing so by marrying Bathsheba if he can present it as oh Uriah died in battle 
I've done a good thing. I've married his wife. Oh, and she's pregnant because we just had a child. What another great way to cover up your sin. Because nobody would be the wiser. Look at verses 14. We're going to read a chunk right now. 14 through 27. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jehobasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against against us, came out against us in the field, but we pressed them far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servant from the wall, So some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So basically, David contacts, or actually writes a letter to Joab, his commander, and comes up with this plan. I want you to have Uriah killed in battle so it looks like a battle injury. Look how sick this is. David literally sent Uriah back to the front with his own death warrant in his hand. Talk about ironic. David orders Joab, his military commander, the one who is supposed to be responsible for the care of his men, asks him to do something that is totally contrary to his position. You talk to any military commander and he will tell you about his heart and his compassion for the men that he's supposed to care for and everything that he's supposed to do to care for them. And what David says is, I need you to go against that, Joab. I need this man eliminated. Notice, too, when Joab carries out his plan, it's not just Uriah that is killed, but other soldiers as well. Even David's response when he learns Uriah is dead is sort of stomach-turning. Look at verse 25 again. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. In other words, David basically says, Ah, don't worry about it, Joab. Yeah, I know you're responsible for having some guy killed now. Don't worry about it. It just happens in time of war. And Oh, by the way, just go ahead and ransack the city. Maybe that'll take you, make you feel better if you can defeat defeat them he's so cavalier in his attitude here 
Abraham's response indicates a wickedness, a hardness, and a callousness that's nearly impossible for us to understand or describe, let alone accept from one of God's children. Especially David. It's hard to know exactly why. It kind of catches us off guard, does it not? Isn't that the way it is usually? How many times have we seen our leaders stumble and fall, catch us off guard, shock us, and we say, what? But he was a godly leader, a godly man. What happened? It's hard for us to put our hands around. Well, James has already told us it's because we allow the temptation to progress by being enticed by our own lust, taken captive, and so it ultimately happens that when we do that, the end result is that it gives birth to sin. It's hard to stop. Once David looked down at Bathsheba and decided, I'm going to keep looking, and now I'm going to ask, and now I'm going to inquire, and now I'm going to have them bring her to me, it could not have ended any differently for David. I'm sorry, but it couldn't have. Because he allowed himself to be enticed by his own desires. He allowed it to give birth to sin. The last point is that in spite of David's attempt to cover up his sin, he couldn't hide it from the Lord. Maybe none in Israel, aside from maybe his servants, his servants would have known what he had done because he sent them down to get her. I'm sure that they were probably wise enough to go, Isn't that the girl we brought up to David? She's pregnant now? Wasn't Uriah away at the... He's dead now? Huh. But aside from that, Israel would have been none the wiser. So David may have been able to cover up his sin with Bathsheba for all of Israel. But again, look at verse 27. The second half. But the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Different translations treat that a little differently. The New American Standard and the Holman refer to it as evil, David having done evil. Some of your translations, however, will say that it upset or displeased the Lord. And that's because the word that's used there, the Hebrew word ra'ah, can mean both. It can mean evil or wickedness, but it can also mean displeasure or displeasing. Those two go hand in hand because the Lord hates evil and he is greatly distressed and displeased by evil. So, Either one of those translations is appropriate for this passage. What David did was evil in the sight of the Lord, and it distressed him, displeased him greatly because of it. So what do we do with this passage today? I, I feel, I wish we had more time because I think, and I'm gonna, I think I'm going to do this next week, I'm going to actually bump out a little bit next week. I didn't plan to do this, but I'm going to, sort of wrap this up for us, but then I'm going to suggest that maybe we spend next week talking about things that we can do maybe to avoid what David did. What does the scripture say to us about how to deal with temptation or how to deal with um, sin? And so I'm going to spend some time doing that because I feel like we should do that today because I don't want to leave us hanging. 
But I want to just summarize it with this. There's a bunch of things we can learn from this that I think will help us. The first is that temptation often begins innocently enough. I think that's, that's important for us to remember. We don't have to go out looking for it. It's part of our daily lives. It's something we're going to face on a regular basis, which means we have to be aware of that. We have to recognize that we are individuals with a propensity still to sin. Even with the Holy Spirit, we are still tempted, are we not? Because temptation is a part of human nature. Even Jesus, again, was tempted. So we need to be aware of the fact that um, temptation comes as a part of our everyday life and oftentimes when we least expect it. It can come internally through... The Bible really points out three ways that we're tempted. The lust of the eyes, what we see. The lust of the flesh, what we feel. And the pride of life. It comes from John, 1 John chapter 2. So we are often tempted internally through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Just who we are in some respects. But can also come externally from the enemy. First Peter chapter 5 says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour us. You may have heard it referred to as the fiery darts sometimes that get shot at us from the enemy. And so we are tempted both internally and externally. And the enemy is smart enough to know not just to drop a big sign in front of us, you're being tempted. It just comes as a part of our everyday life, walking around. I learned years ago that, and I, don't, I haven't seen this much anymore because I almost never go into a gas station. But I had learned years ago there were some gas stations when I was in college where like at that time you always still went in and you paid with cash usually. Um, and every, there was a couple of gas stations where every time I would go in, right there at the counter, underneath the counter, right there facing you as you'd walk up were all the, I'll call them girly magazines to be gentle. And I finally got to the point where I'm like, you know what, I'm just not going to buy gas at those gas stations. It's not something I needed to see. They were designed that way for a reason. They weren't there because they knew that, oh, just the people that really want that stuff are going to come and look for it right there, so we'll make it convenient for them. No, they have it there because they know every customer coming in to pay for gas will see that and will be enticed. I learned the same thing with with, um, walking into grocery stores um, with a lot of the magazines, the um, Cosmopolitan and other magazines that were just inappropriate. And so I made a habit of going to certain lanes at a particular grocery store that I was at because they didn't do that at that one particular lane. They do that for a reason. We just get caught off guard sometimes. We walk into things. We see things. We Maybe something happens. I think I mentioned the other day or last time, last week, that um, I was working on Kimberly's graduation invitations and stuff and things just were not going well and I lost my cool. You know, I didn't sit down going, I really feel like losing my cool today. I didn't expect that I would have to do these invitations four times in a row because the website kept not functioning the way it should have. And as an IT guy, that drives me batty. I didn't sit down deciding I felt like sinning it that day and I just needed to get something off my chest. So in some respects, it caught me off, caught me off guard. But much like David, as I sat there, I knew things were festering. I knew that, oh, mm. So the first thing is that temptation often starts innocently enough and catches us off guard. Second thing that we learn from David's experience is that temptation will inevitably lead to sin if if we allow it to carry us away and entice us. And that was David's problem. 
as I mentioned, he continued to look. And because he continued to look, then he started going, I wouldn't mind a little more information about her. You know? I'll just inquire about her. Who is she? Temptation is always easiest to battle when it first begins. It would have been easier for David at that point to go, nope, nope, I shouldn't keep looking. Maybe I'll walk to the other side of the roof. It would have been a lot easier to do that than when she's standing in front of him and she's in his chambers and his guards and his servants have already left and it's now just he and him. And David's going, I really shouldn't do this. The law says I really shouldn't do this. And by the way, this is my commander's wife. I really shouldn't do this. But you know what? She's already here. So temptation is always easiest to battle when it first begins rather than after we've entertained it and allowed it to now begin to fester within. Third thing that we can learn from this is that sin often leads to other sins. And it certainly did in David's case, did it not? What started out as lust ultimately became adultery, which ultimately led to deception, manipulation, which ultimately led to not just murder, but involving others in that murder as well. And ultimately it led to the death of not just Uriah, but other innocent men at the front. Talk about a cascading effect that all began with a look. And so the third thing that we can learn from this is that oftentimes once that starts it can cascade into other things. Rarely do we sin one sin and no other sins are associated with it. You ever find that with your own life? You know, you sin and then you lie about it. You got two right there, right out the door, right? Or maybe you sin and somebody confronts you on it, then you become arrogant, proud, or boastful, or argumentative. Okay, so it's rare for sin to sort of be on this island all by itself. Oftentimes there are other things that get dragged in and we try to cover it up and that's what we learn from David here. I think the last thing we learn here is that no matter how much we try to cover up that sin, the Lord actually sees it and is displeased by it. Others may not. We may have covered it up, but the Lord sees it. I think what we're going to do next week is instead of just move on to David's confrontation with Nathan, and there's this great passage coming up in 12 on how David deals with his sin, and it is remarkable. In fact, Dustin's going to spend a week. um, We have some psalms that were written at this time, and Dustin's going to take a little bit of time to get into David's head for us. And so we get this remarkable um, confession. We, We see the Lord's forgiveness of David, but we see him facing some consequences as well. Um, even in the passage I was working on last night, um, I can see how as David faces the consequences God has laid out, God is still faithful and hears his prayer, still answers those prayers. He doesn't shut himself off from David. He doesn't send David away. And so we're going to see how even in the midst of this horrific sin that David's committed, the Lord's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, because of how David handles it, Because when David's confronted, he's got very few words for the Lord. I've sinned. Doesn't go on and explain it. Doesn't try to justify it. Just, I've sinned against the Lord. 
And so we're going to see these neat things that, that happen. So I feel bad leaving us hang right here because I don't want you to feel as though, okay, we just slammed ourselves for sin. We're wicked, evil people and we sin. But it's kind of hard to get into those other things now and not give it adequate amount of time. But, but let's at least stop today's passage looking at the fact that we know going forward the Lord will forgive David for this wickedness. As, as graphic as it is, as disturbing as it is, when he confronts David, he says, you're right, Lord. And the Lord is gracious and merciful and kind, even though David will face some consequences. And so I'm looking forward to that as we do that, but rest assured that if the Lord can forgive David this, can he, for not, can he not forgive anything This was a man after God's own heart that did a horrific thing. But even after that, he was still referred to as a a man after God's own heart. And it says an awful lot and probably more about God's grace and forgiveness than it does David. Because he's desperate now at this point for God's forgiveness. Up until this point, we we thought, that's a pretty good guy. We can see why he's a man after God's own heart. He seems to do just everything right. Yeah, he stumbles here and there, but he really, boy, what a great guy we can follow. And all of a sudden now we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe that's why God used him as an example for us. Because it's more about reflecting his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness after a wicked, wicked act. But we have to recognize that it's because David actually recognized his sin, allowed the Lord to cleanse him, and so that will become important. So I'm going to go ahead and just uh, end on that note. I think this is a good reminder to us um, of the danger we face, even as God's people, the temptation that stands in front of us oftentimes because being left here in the flesh. Um, but there's hope, and again, we'll get into that next week as we do kind of a topical look next week of just some various passages on how might David have responded? What might David should he have done to be able to battle this? The Bible has an awful lot to say about why we get carried away and enticed and things that we can do. There's no magic bullet. I can't give you a formula to stop sin. Okay, But we'll look at some of the things in the scriptures that will help us as believers to, um, to maybe not end up where David ended up in this case, if you will.